The following message entitled, Our Experienced Savior, part five of the series, Hold Fast, was given by Stephen Outrogi on March 20, 2011 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming if this is your first Sunday. We're in the middle of our series, Hold Fast. It's a series on the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be in it for a while. So if you could please turn to Hebrews chapter 2, look down at verse 10. We'll read this together. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, it is a wonderful thing to have your word. Thank you for speaking to us through this book. Lord, affect us right now. Speak to us now through your word. Draw us to yourself. Warm our hearts with love for you. Give us fresh, fresh affection for you, God. We're so grateful, Lord, that you have saved us. Saved us. We're so glad to be your people. We love you, Lord. We want to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Part of my job as a pastor that I am grateful to do is I get to work with college students a lot. And so as I work with college students, one of the things that I get to see is I get to see them go through the graduation process. So as they get to the end of their college career, usually last semester, a couple things start happening. They start getting ready for graduation, applying for graduation, getting all the cap and gown, everything necessary for graduation. Also, start looking for a job because a lot of college students suddenly have the frightening realization that college is over and they have to work. So they start looking for a job at the end of college. And a lot of times when students start looking for a job, they make an interesting discovery, sometimes an unpleasant discovery. They've just spent four years and $40,000 or more on an education. 
And this education is supposed to qualify them for their job. They're supposed to be qualified. They're a college graduate now. And they just forked out a big load of cash to be a college graduate. So they should be qualified for their job. But what I hear a lot of times is this. Man, I've been looking for jobs and everything I look at says you need five years or more of experience. And the more they look for jobs, the more they realize that they're not qualified for all the jobs they thought they were qualified for. And a lot of times what students have to do is get you know, a job to get their foot in the door, get a, a starter job, a job that will lead them to something better. It's a job where they can get experience. And we know how this works. I think all of us have been through this. We understand that the longer you have a job, the more you do your, your job, the more experienced you are, right? And the better you do it. You get more experience, you're more qualified, you do your job better. Um, you know, if you think about a, a doctor, for some reason, I know doctors go through hundreds of hours of training and experience, but when you hear that the doctor who's doing your operation is fresh out of med school, there's just something a little bit like nervous about that. Like, oh, are you sure you've exper- you're experienced enough to do this operation? We trust people who have more experience. And this morning, as we read these verses together, what we're going to see, and this is a little bit surprising, I think, is that it's Jesus' experience that qualifies him to be the perfect Savior. Jesus is the perfect Savior because of his experiences. And if you want a main point for all these verses, if you want to try and sum this whole passage up in one main point, it's this. By suffering in the flesh... Jesus became the perfect Savior. By suffering in the flesh, Jesus became the perfect Savior. And when you hear me say that, I think you could almost think right off the bat, what do you mean He became the perfect Savior? almost sounds heretical, doesn't it? Like as if Jesus was somehow imperfect and now He became a perfect Savior. It's almost like, are you saying that Jesus forever in eternity past, was not perfect, and then suddenly he became perfect? No, that's not what this passage is saying. What this is saying is, and I think we need to understand this, Jesus' experiences have qualified him. That's, that's a better way of describing it. He's now qualified to be our perfect Savior. And we're going to see more about what this means as we read through this as we continue to read through this, but we're going to see that Jesus' suffering allowed him to be something that he couldn't otherwise be. That by becoming a man and suffering in our place, he became something that he couldn't otherwise be. And the first thing that he has become is our brother. Jesus has become our brother. The first point is that Jesus is our brother. Look down at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why He's not ashamed to call them brothers. And right off the bat, as we read these verses, we hit something that's, It's surprising. It's baffling a little bit. Look down at what verse 10 says. It says that it was fitting. For it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And when we read that, we we should immediately think, why 
And how could it be fitting for the Son of God to suffer? What was fitting about that? How could it be fitting that Jesus, the one whom the angels worship, the one whom all of heaven praises, how could it be fitting for him to be mauled by Roman soldiers, nailed to a cross, beaten beyond human recognition, and have the wrath of God poured out on him? How is that fitting? How could that be good? How could that possibly be a good fitting thing? And to the Jews, this was a crazy idea that the Messiah would suffer? That the Son of God, the Messiah, would suffer? That's crazy. To a lot of other religions, it also seems crazy. That's why Muslims believe, Muslims believe that God will not let a prophet suffer like that. That's why, they think, that's why they think that Judas was crucified instead of Jesus on the cross. And that's why Paul wrote, if you remember, Paul wrote that to the, to the Greeks, the gospel is foolishness. Because it's, it's the sense of how could this be right? How could this be fitting? What good could come out of the Son of God dying? Well, we're going to see some incredibly good things came out of it. And we get part of the answer in verse 10. Look down at verse 10. It was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should, be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in some way, it was God's plan from eternity past to use Jesus' horrendous, brutal sufferings to make Him perfect. In some way, God made Jesus perfect through suffering. This doesn't mean that He was not perfect beforehand in the sense that His character was not perfect. Jesus has always been perfect in character and goodness and glory, but He did become perfect in another way. And verse 11 tells us about it. Verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, for, for he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is explaining how Jesus became perfect. It says in this passage that the one who sanctifies us is Jesus Christ. And what that means is to be sanctified is to be set apart for God. And so through Jesus, we have been set apart for God. He saved us. He's washed us with His blood. He's cleansed us. He gave us a new heart. And He has set us apart to serve the living God. And there's a second part of what it means to be sanctified. It also means that we become more like Jesus. In our character, we become more like Jesus. We follow Him more closely. We become more loving. We become more gracious. That's also what it means to be sanctified. And here's where it starts to get amazing. Because look at what it says. They all, we all have one source. In other words, Jesus is the one who sanctifies and we're the one who is being sanctified and we all have one source. What that means is we're all human together. Jesus became like us. He took on our flesh. He took on our bodies. And He's the one who sanctifies us. And He's like us. The one who helps us overcome sin is the one who was tempted like us. The one who helps us walk through suffering is the one who suffered like us. He became like us. And He's the one who is making us more like Himself. Isn't that encouraging to you? Jesus knows what we're going through. He knows how we're tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. And He's the one who helps us. 
He's the one who helps us be more like him. He knows exactly what you need. Exactly. Whatever situation you're in, he knows what you need. And he can give it to you. And he wants to help you. He wants to sanctify you and make you more like himself. So encouraging to me. And because he's like us, and this is where it just starts to get unbelievably mind-boggling. Because he's like us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus calls us, me and you. He calls you his brother and his sisters. I am the brother of Jesus because he's like me. He took on flesh like me. He suffered for me. And if Jesus was an angel, if Jesus was just a spirit or an angel, maybe he would be ashamed of us. Maybe he would, because you think of the angels. The angels are these brilliant, bright, glorious creatures that people are tempted to worship. And you could think, well, maybe an angel would be ashamed because we're, I mean, look at us. We're just frail, fragile. We get sick. Our bodies fall apart. But he's like us. He's not like the angels. He's like us. And so he's not ashamed to say, you are my brothers and my sisters. I've bought you. I've cleansed you. I call you brother. And there's just that term of affection there, brother. You're my brother. And this is one of the ways that Jesus became perfect through suffering. Before he took on flesh, he couldn't call us brothers. But now that he took on flesh, he calls us his brothers. And he says, we're in this together. We're in this with Jesus. Jesus says, you're in it with me. We're all in the same boat together and I'm with you. And I'm going to help you and I'm going to strengthen you because you're my brothers and we're together and we're going to fight this together. We're going to win this together. And if you think about it, haven't we given Jesus every reason to be ashamed of us? We have. We've given Jesus so many reasons he should be ashamed of us. We have sinned against God. We've been selfish. We've been unloving. We've been impatient with our children. We've had lustful thoughts, angry thoughts. We've said cruel things to people. Jesus should be ashamed of us. But He's not. This is where it's amazing. Jesus is not ashamed to associate with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, even though we are impure and He's glorious and holy. He says, you're my brothers. I've cleansed you. I've bought you. You're my brothers and you belong to me. I'm not ashamed of you. Doesn't that encourage you this morning that Jesus isn't ashamed of you? And some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you are ashamed to come to God. You're ashamed. You're ashamed either because of a pattern of sin in your life or because of a particular sin that happened that you committed. And you're ashamed. And you've asked God to forgive you a thousand times, but you still feel so ashamed about it. You still feel dirty. You feel like you can't come to God, like God would not love you, like God would not accept you. You feel a sense of shame before God. And you can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. Or maybe you feel ashamed because someone of a sin someone else committed against you. And you just feel like, I, I'm just ashamed of this. Just ashamed of what's happened. And you just feel dirty. You feel unclean. I want to tell you this morning. I want you to hear Jesus Christ saying to you, I'm not ashamed of you. 
I want you to hear his loving voice saying, I'm not ashamed of you. If you have trusted in the blood of Jesus, he is not ashamed of you. I don't care what you've done in your past. He's not ashamed of you. And he says, come to me. Come into the presence of God. He brings you into the presence of God. You don't have to be ashamed because you're going into the presence of God with Jesus taking you there. That's why you're not ashamed. And you need to hear that and believe that this morning. Oh, Jesus loves you so much. And he's not ashamed because he bought you, he cleansed you, and he calls you his brother. And he wants you to be encouraged by that this morning. He wants to set you free from shame. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to set you free from shame. And Jesus can set you free from shame because he was put to shame on the cross. He was put to shame. He was mocked and reviled and rebuked, spit on. That's shame. But now Jesus says, I took that. You don't have to be ashamed. You're with me. And there's no shame when you're with me. Because you're my brother. Now look down at verses 12 and 13. We see more more proof, more evidence mounting that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. These are two verses from the Old Testament. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given, given me. And this first quote where he says, I will tell of, of your name to my brothers, that's from Psalm 22. And do you remember Psalm 22 That's what Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm of suffering. But at the end of the psalm, it changes. And hope arises that after, it, it was talking about the Messiah. And after the Messiah suffers and triumphs over his suffering, he's going to have brothers. And he's going he's to tell the glory of God to his brothers. And so it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so Jesus has triumphed over his sufferings. And he calls us his brothers. And he declares the glory of God to us, his brothers. And then in the next verse, where it says, and again, I will put my trust in him. That's from Isaiah 8, 17 to 18. In this passage, it's talking about about Isaiah and about these two children that Isaiah had. And these two children of Isaiah, they were going to be what was called a remnant. In other words, they were going to be amidst all of Israel who had walked away from God in so many ways. These children of Isaiah were going to be a remnant, a people of God who truly did follow God, who truly did love the Lord, who truly did obey the Lord. And so Isaiah was saying, Behold, the children God has given me. But now we see this. It's totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We are the people of God. Jesus has rescued us. He has saved us. And that's as if he's saying, look to his father. Look at all these children, God, you've given me. And he calls us his brothers. And in a sense, his children that he's rescued. So Jesus is not ashamed to be with us. He's not ashamed. He declares God's praise to us. And he calls us his children. The church is the true people of God and Jesus identifies with us. And the reason all all this is is because he took on our nature. He became like us. 
He identifies with us. He stepped down out of glory to become like us. And because he has a human body and flesh and he suffered, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Aren't you glad that Jesus calls you his brother? Aren't you, if there's anyone you wanted to say, that is my brother, aren't you glad that it's Jesus saying that to you? You're my brother. But not only is he our brother, he's also our deliverer. That's the second point. Jesus, through his sufferings, Jesus became our deliverer. Jesus, our deliverer. Look down at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Our salvation could only be accomplished by a man, by a human, because we have sinned against God. And our sins have mounted so high that we could never pay the debt. Never. We have sinned against God. All of humanity, including us, has sinned so repeatedly against God that we are buried under a mountain of sin. Buried, dead, unable to rescue ourselves. But somebody had to, if anyone's going to pay it, it had to be a human. So we've got this mountain of sin weighing us down, unable to escape. Who can rescue us? Who can rescue us? And the penalty for sin that's heaped upon us is spiritual death. That's the penalty. The penalty for sin against God is eternal spiritual death. And it's hanging over every person. Because all have sinned against God. And from the time of Adam until, well, even through now, death has reigned in the world, hasn't it? There's a sense where death, real death, where people die, it's, it's always there. It's always hanging over us. Death is coming. We feel it. We know that it's coming. And it's just filled the world. Death and sorrow have filled the world. And if you watch television for five minutes, you see it. You see these pictures of Japan where it's just devastated, just wiped out. And you see houses on fire and you see these reports of possibly 10,000 people having died. And death has filled the world and Satan loves death and sorrow. Satan loves it. Satan loves misery. He loves death and sorrow. It's his realm. That's where he operates is in the realm of death and sorrow. And when he tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, death and sorrow came into the world. Because they believed Satan's lies. And so Satan has, in a sense, held the power of death in his hands. Death has come into the world by the way he tempts people. And so this is the problem we all face. All of us. How can we escape from this problem? We've all sinned against God. We all have a mountain of sin to pay. Death is coming. How can we be rescued? And you can almost hear... You can almost hear Satan leveling accusations against each one of us. Can't you? You can almost hear him saying, They've sinned, God. They've sinned. They've sinned. They belong to me. They belong in death. Give them the death that they deserve, God. They've sinned against you. They've broken your law. They've done what I told them to do, so they belong to me. Can you almost hear that accusation coming? God, they've sinned against you. Give them what they deserve. 
how are we going to escape that? How could we get out of this? How can this problem be solved? Here's how it's solved. Jesus became like us. Jesus stepped out of glory into darkness to save us, to be like us, to rescue us. He took on our flesh. He took on a human body and He paid the debt we could never pay. He lived the flawless, obedient life God required. 33 years of obedience. And if there was ever one person who could say, God, I deserve eternal life, it was Jesus. If there was ever one person who could say, I've done it all for you, God, it was Jesus. If anyone could ever say, here I am, God, let me into heaven, it's Jesus. But he didn't. Instead, he died. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross and God heaped on him all our black, perverse, awful, wicked sins. God piled them on Jesus. God laid all our iniquity on him and then God crushed Jesus. God poured out spiritual death on Jesus. He didn't just physically die. There was spiritual death being poured on Jesus. And he was absorbing it all, taking it all, drinking it all in. And then God crushed him. That's what God did. He crushed his son. And here's what he did. Look down at verse, look at verse 12 again. Sorry, look down at verse 14. Let's just marvel at what Jesus did. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan through his own death. It's almost like Jesus took Satan's weapon from him, took Satan's own sword of death and stabbed it back into Satan. Jesus has done it because He took on our body and He took death for us. And so Satan can no longer level any accusations against us. He can no longer say, you belong in the realm of death. We say back, no we do not. Jesus pulled us out of that. Through His own death, Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan. He's destroyed the power of sin. He's destroyed the power of death. And so I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. Satan does not have any claim on me anymore, does he? We're no longer slaves to Satan. We're no longer in his kingdom. We're in the kingdom of Jesus. Because Jesus won. Jesus was victorious. Jesus conquered. He's dealt Satan a crippling death blow. Crippling. Satan no longer can hold the power of death over us. We've been freed. This is just incredible. We have been freed from the fear of death. We are free from the fear of dying. Our culture is terrified of dying. Everybody is terrified of dying. We spend millions upon millions of dollars to put it off. And we no longer have to fear it. We no longer fear death. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, you should fear death. You should. Because after death comes destruction for those who have rejected Jesus. And so you should really fear death if you have not trusted in Jesus to save you. 
You should be afraid of dying. But if you have trusted in Jesus, there's no fear of death. Because Jesus took all the sting in himself. He took all the fear and pain of death in him. And there's no fear of death. There's no fear anymore of death. And only Jesus could do this. Only Jesus could take death and make it gain. Only Jesus could make dying gain. Remember when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? How could dying be gain? Only Jesus could make dying gain. And He has done it. He has done it. And we can look death in the eye and say, you don't scare me anymore. I'm not afraid of you because I know what's after you. Jesus waits for me. Jesus is there. He already took all the sting of death. And I know what's coming. And so Jesus has delivered us from the slavery of the fear of death. We no longer are enslaved to the fear of dying. And listen to this quote by John Calvin. This is amazing. It says, Here His infinite love appears. Talking about Jesus. Here His infinite love appears that He put on our nature that He might thus make Himself capable of dying. Here His infinite love appears that He put on our nature that He might thus make Himself capable of dying. As God, as the immortal God, Jesus could not die. God is immortal, eternal, indestructible. But by taking on our flesh, Jesus made Himself capable of dying. Do you feel the love of of Jesus Christ? Do you feel the infinite love of Jesus for you? Not just for us as a a group. Do you feel Jesus' love for you? What would possess God to step out of glory into our filth and our muck and to take our sin and to die for us? What would make Him do that? Only infinite love for you. And so... I want you to feel that this morning. God wants you to feel how much He loves you. Some of you are suspicious, almost wondering, could God really love me? Yes, He does. And He says, look at what I did to prove it. Look at all that I did to prove that I love you. I rescued you. I saved you. He wants you to know that. He wants you to feel that. And He did that By becoming like us. He delivered us by becoming like us. Because Jesus became like you, He can deliver you from the fear of death. He has delivered us. He destroyed Satan's power because He's our deliverer. So Jesus is our brother. He's our deliverer. And then the last part that we see in this verse is He's our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Look down at verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the one man who went into the most holy place in the temple. And he would go into the most holy place on the day of atonement and he would offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. He would pray for the people of Israel. He would, in a sense, be a mediator. He would be like a go-between 
for God and the people of Israel. There's the high priest. And what this passage tells us is that Jesus became like us. Jesus became like us in every way so that he could be merciful toward us and faithful as a high priest. Jesus became like us so he could be filled with mercy toward us. He experienced the full range of life. Jesus experienced the heights of joy. He experienced the depths of sorrow. He experienced gladness. He experienced grief. He experienced the wonderful close relationship of family and he experienced being rejected by his own brothers. Jesus has felt it all. He had a body that got sick. He had a body that had pain. He had a body that got headaches and backaches and sickness. Jesus knows what that's like. He's been through it. He had a body that couldn't fall asleep at times. He felt hunger and thirst. And he really was tempted too. Jesus was tempted. Just like we are tempted. And I've heard some people say, Oh, Jesus was the Son of God. Those weren't real temptations. How could that be a real temptation if Jesus was the Son of God? They were real temptations. They were real strong temptations. Jesus had to go head to head with Satan himself. The one, the highest demon, Satan, the one premier tempter. Satan unleashed all his powers of temptation on Jesus. Do you think Satan held any punches back trying to tempt Jesus? Do you think Satan said, oh, I'm going to save the best temptations for another time? No, he unleashed all his temptations on Jesus, trying to persuade him to disobey God. And Jesus endured it all. He never sinned once, but he felt the full power of Satan's temptations. See, to be honest, I don't think Satan doesn't need to tempt me. He can just send one of his little demon tempters to tempt me. I'm weak. I'm frail. I'm easily tempted. Satan himself went after Jesus. And he was tempted. He felt it. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And because he became like us, he's full of mercy to us. Because he became a human, and suffered and lived our life. He knows what you are going through. He's experienced it. He's not distant some up in some ivory tower, cold and looking down on you. He knows what you experienced. And that fills Him with mercy toward you. Because isn't it true that when you go through something, when you go through a trial or a difficult time, isn't it true that you're, you tend to be then more merciful and gracious and compassionate when you see other people going through the same thing? You know, you go through something, you experience something difficult, and you see someone else going through it, you feel mercy toward them. Because you're like, oh, I know what that's like. I know how hard that is. You know, for me, for example, there have been times in my life when I have battled intense anxiety. Just this feeling in my chest of just feeling anxious. It keeps me awake at night. I can't sleep. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. It makes me just not feel feel good. It's not even necessarily connected to anything I'm particularly worried about. It's just an intense feeling of anxiousness. And when I see someone else going through that, I feel mercy toward them. I feel compassionate toward them. I feel so sad when I see someone else experiencing the same thing. But I'm pretty limited in how I can help them. I, I can only do so much for them. I can pray for them. I can try to encourage them a little bit. But really, I'm 
I can't, what else can I do? I'm just, I'm just me. I can't do much for other people. All I can do is pray for them. It's not so with Jesus, though. Jesus, what it says, look down at verse 18. He is able to help those who are being tempted. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is the infinite, almighty Son of God, reigning in glory. All the angels worship Him. All of heaven declares His praise. And He can help you when you are tempted. Because He was tempted. He suffered. He endured. He went through what you're going through. And so He knows how to help you. He knows what you need. He knows exactly how to help you. And He's full of mercy toward you. He's not like a football coach who's like, just come on, just suck it up, man. Just get some ice on it. Suck it up. Buckle down. You're tougher than this. No, He's full of mercy. He's full of compassion. And when you struggle, He feels it. And He wants to help you. And He can help you. He's able to help you like no one else can help you. He's able to give you exactly what you need. And so this morning, my hope is that you can almost... You can almost picture Jesus just waiting for you to come to Him for help. He's just waiting for you to come. Just waiting for you to say, Jesus, please help me. And when you say that, He says, yes, I will help you. I've been where you've been, and so I know exactly how to help you. I know exactly what you need in this situation. No one else knows exactly what you're going through. But Jesus can help you. He knows exactly what you need. He suffered temptation in every way and he says, I'm right here to help you. So are you, are you suffering? Are you in pain? Well, Jesus went through pain and he knows how to help you. Are you lonely? Jesus was abandoned by all his friends. He knows loneliness and he knows how to help you. Are you tempted to be angry because of the way someone is treating you? Jesus was mistreated and he knows exactly what you need. Are you feeling weary and just worn out with life? The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows. And he just is tender toward you and he just wants to strengthen you. He's our brother. He's our deliverer. He's our high priest. He's exactly what we need. He became like us so he could help us. Remember that phrase. He became like me so he could help me. He became like me so he could strengthen me. And God wants to strengthen you today. And so as we go out of here this week, can we do this? The moment you find yourself tempted, the moment you find yourself struggling, the moment you find yourself sick or worried or fearful or any situation, run to Jesus and say, help me. I don't even know what to do, so help me. And he will do that. He will help you. And we should leave here just being cheerful and grateful because we've got Jesus on our side. Is there anyone better that we should have on our side? We've got Jesus on our side. And he's able to give us exactly what we need. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like my dad to come up. We're going to sing this final song in Christ alone. And this song just talks about how Jesus became like us and he has delivered us. So why don't we all stand together? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself. You became like us. You humbled yourself to death and you suffered 
And now you want to help us. So, Lord, I pray right now for the weak and the weary, that you would strengthen them, Jesus. I pray for the anxious, that you would give them peace. I pray for the fearful and the worried, that you would give them rest in their minds. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us now. I pray for those who are tempted to anger, that they would find your strength. For those who are tempted to impatience, that they would find your patience. Help us, Jesus. We want to serve you. We're so grateful that you're so merciful toward us. And Jesus, we love you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.